think we're getting closer to that ideal where like computation is prevalent and everywhere and it's like the very air that we breathe right yeah mark's still using email though yeah <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to episode 158 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Timitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And as usual, we have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Alrighty. So we have a couple of follow-up items. One I posted was, um, I think I picked, it was a Power Pig um, website that had, uh, we talked about this little Lego models of, although not officially Lego, but he's made of these construction bricks, um, computers. I think when Greg was on the show, we talked about, they have like Commodore 64s and uh, Nintendo game systems and things like that. And I posted a, a Flickr album that I created the other day because mine arrived before I headed off to 360i dev. And just when I got back, I had a couple of uh, hours to kill. So I figured I'd go ahead and put it together and sort of do an unboxing to sort of show how well it's packaged and that kind of stuff. And uh, so it comes in two, two, two sets. First set makes the front of the Mac proper itself. Um, and there's like a little mini logic, sorry, little, the logic, what you see on the, the, one of the shots there in green is the, um, that's the RGB board that drives the video uh, plane in, in the uh, original Macs, as well as there's a CRT um, sort of model. And it has the word hello uh, printed onto the bricks. And then you put together the um, fr- face of the the Macintosh, and it also has a little you know a couple of bricks that represent the uh, floppy drive mechanism that go in there as well. And then you put together the back, and and once you've got the thing uh, assembled, and of course a keyboard and a mouse. But once you get the thing assembled, it actually slides together just like um, uh, an original Mac does. When you I don't know if you guys have ever use a case cracker to open up one of your old. Have you did you ever have an all in one Mac, the original ones? Either of you guys? I never had one. No. No, neither did I. I have a number of them here, and if, and people who know everything up to, I think the Mac Plus model, um, all the original developers who worked on the Macintosh project, including Steve Jobs, had their signatures in, embossed into the casing, right? Um, so if you look, if you pull apart the casing and you look at the back of the inside of the casing, it's usually covered in like aluminum paint or whatever, but you can see that you can make out the different signatures. So, um, if you wanted to, you know, work on, if the logic board was, wasn't working and you wanted to be able to open it up and, you know, resolder in some, some RAM, which is what they used to do back then when they fixed Max. Um, yeah, it basically comes to, goes together and comes apart just like, uh, like, a, an actual Mac, uh, 128 or 512. And the keyboard there plugs into the front of the computer. It used to use like a telephone cable, um, like an RJ11 connector and then a little mouse in the back. So it's, it's neat. If you're into Macs, it's, uh, I think it's quite a little, uh, nice little desk ornament, you know, for your cubicle or for your desk. That's my follow up on my little brick Mac. And we were talking about just before we started recording the show, if you went a little bit larger in scale you could put a raspberry pi in there and have some sort of like little small little uh little mini mac i think there actually are now that i say, say that i think on thingiverse there's like a 3d model uh of a mac casing that you can print out and uh you know buy a small lcd screen and put together uh, a little raspberry pi mac not that it would be raspberry pi it'd probably be unix or something right so yeah well, if it were if it were big enough you could put a mac mini in there 
it's true. It's true. Yep. Yep. Well, I actually have a color classic here too, which um, some people had taken apart, taken the original Mac iMac logic boards because that fits inside there. Right? If you just if you hack it a bit, um, you can actually get a uh, like an iMac uh, going in the um, in a color classic. Right. So that was one of the hacking uh, updates that people used to do. If you want a G3, is it G3? I guess it's G3. No, G1, G2. I don't know. Can't remember what the iMacs are. Anyway, long time. Power PC anyway, right? Aren't they? You guys don't know. Yeah, well, the original iMacs were, they were G3s. Right. But yeah. there, were, there were also G4 models. Right, yeah. But they were they were flat, like the, the with the LCD screens built in, right? So I have a couple yeah, of those. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. G, no, yeah. they were G5s, actually, now that I think about it. G4s were the Luxo, the one that looked like a lamp, you know? With yeah, the, I had one of those. That was I think G- that was a G3. Three? No, those are those G4. are G fours. Those are G fours. I have a couple. I have a couple of those, and then of course the power, the um, the G four cube. You know the Mac cube. That was a G four mm-hmm. as well, right? Mm-hmm. It looked like a toaster with the CD or DVD player popping at the top. Anyway, that's uh, yeah. So if you're into Macs and you're into some desk ornament, I recommend this uh, piece. And if you want to see how it goes together, all the bits, all the bricks involved, um, check out my Flickr gallery that I'll post in the show notes. All right. Um, are we talking about this the growth engine? I can't remember if we said yes or no. We'll skip it. I think it's fair to bring up as uh, as follow up because we've talked about like their quarterly reports and okay. Well, you wanted to talk about the AMP thing. Yeah, I don't know how that ties in, but um, yeah. So I posted this link that I saw on the way out of Denver about. Uh, uh, I think on CNBC about Apple's surprising growth engine, and that's sort of their uh, extra services growing you know, leaps and bounds. And we talked about that. And as this is why this is follow up for this show, as we've talked about this in past in terms of part of their new business strategy, right? So, oh no, this is the one about the uh, licensing deal for uh, search engines. That's what this guy was, right? The fact that uh, Google will pay Apple three billion in fees. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> having having Google in there as a default search engine, and they pay you a, such a princely fee is is fantastic man that's basically pure profit for them on that standpoint um as far as the services revenue goes it's good to see it grow i do wonder from who is it was it ben thompson from uh, stratechery mm-hmm. i think he's brought up a good point in some other circumstances that um sometimes you have a business that looks really diverse but you really only have one business and i think i would say that apple largely has an iphone business that has all these other things kind of growing around it related to it like like let's say let's say tomorrow they stopped making the iPhone. They just said, you know what? Forget this this other event. We're never going to make another iPhone. Would their services business still continue to grow? I I kind of doubt it. I think it's very um, very much dependent on the growth of their their iPhone stuff. I mean, granted, they do have the Mac, they do have you know Apple TV and, and other things, but it sort of seems like the the leader in that aspect is getting stuff into your hands via your iPhone and and then being able to cross sell you and, and potentially upsell you on some of the services like Apple Music, for example. Yeah, and I cloud storage yeah which they're now getting uh what 99 cents a month for me now since i went ahead and jumped in on the icloud storage so <laughs> it kind of makes sense like i wouldn't even i literally would not even need that um that 99 cents if i was not using an ios device or an, an iphone right. in particular is that what it costs yeah. us because I, I jumped in on that one too um that's the basic tier yeah yeah uh because i was going to ask because i saw something a tweet go by when ios 11 was announced i don't know if you guys have seen this or not but because uh, because carol's machine has way more photos on it than mine does and they want us to go up to the what's the next level up the two um what's the next level up after the 99 250 or something what do we get for 99 cents or 99 cents? one sec i'm checking so 99 cents a month i get 50 gigabytes right for 299 a month i would get 200 gigabytes or i could go all in at 999 a month all prices us for two terabytes 
Right. But is there a way to, really I'm going with this, is, is I, I heard that there's going to be a way to use family sharing to share um, the iCloud storage across. So I would jump into the two, to, at the 299 level and then just use it for all my both my Macs or both of my Mac, Mac accounts. I hadn't heard any of that, eh? I'll be honest, I, I don't recall anything like that because it hasn't been my focus. I don't use any of the family sharing stuff. So. <laughs> okay. Right, right. Yet. Well, if you find out, you can you can follow up to this follow-up. Sure. Okay. Well, I think I'm pretty sure it was a tweet by Justin Stanley for another show that I saw that on. So I will, I will follow up for sure. Yeah. So you were mentioning before the show about AMP or something, Apple removing AMP links from URLs. Because there was a post about, um, I think, F- uh, Federico Ficicci, is that his name? Um, tweeted out something earlier today that I didn't quite understand. It was He had posted a Verge article about uh, the this iPad commercial that Apple is talking about with iOS 11 enhancing the iPad. Had you guys seen that? Yeah. So let, let's, let's, let's take a little like bit this. of a step back for folks sure. because... The only reason this came up was during the the pre-show was me being uh, slightly more grumpy than is, you know, rational and reasonable for uh, what we were looking at the show. Have you been drinking again? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't. Maybe maybe I'd be happier if I was. Um, in this case, I noticed that the link that you had for the Apple has a surprising new growth engine from CNBC. Um, okay. I noticed that it had a prefix on there, uh, www-cnbc.com.cdn.ampproject.org. Oh, and, and I've okay. seen that uh, quite a bit coming from you. Know, so I'm like, ah, Tim must have done this from his iPhone or maybe his iPad mm, um, when he put yes. this link in here or when he shared it, you know, on our, um, you know, private channels and stuff. Cause I said, ah, because that's what by default you would get by looking at a mobile view, right? So AMP of course, is the, um, for those who don't know, is the accelerated mobile pages thing that Google has been uh, really pushing. It's uh, ostensibly about sort of rationalizing and bringing the web into a much nicer and um, more performant state. So rather than having a, you know, 50 kilobyte article that's filled with 11 megabytes of crazy JavaScript ads and, and all sorts of other nasty things you don't mm. want, it says, all right, mm. look, just use these parts of the HTML5 spec and everything will be great. It'll be hunky-dory. Um, you know, follow these rules with the way you're using your JavaScript, other bits. It'll be a much better user experience. And as far as the, because that's the carrot side of things, like the the stick is Google saying, oh, by the way, um, we're going to start prioritizing AMP um, compatible pages and websites and links and everything uh, in our search results. So they're kind of using their, their oh, market really? power there to be like, yeah, you're going to have to do this or otherwise I guess you'll just be on the second page of results, right? Which is which is killer for folks. Nice. So yeah. A lot of people have jumped into this. Um, I'm not really going to argue like the, the business... Uh, morals and ethics uh, and implications side of it. Bringing it back to the link you were talking about, Tim, is like, as a user, I find it kind of irritating because I kind of like seeing a link in whatever format makes sense for my platform. Uh, sometimes, you know, when I'm on an iPhone, it makes sense to show the AMP version because I just really need a stripped down, like, just give me the quick details sort of thing. Yeah. But I, I prefer when I'm on a Mac, like I am right now, to see the full experience. And, you know, I'm, I'm using Ghostery, so I don't really worry too much about the ads. So the, the AMP sort of effect doesn't really make my life any, you know, noticeably better there. But what Federico Fetici was talking about is that when you share a link, so let's say you're looking at a, a link that, you know, if you look at the address bar in Safari in iOS 11, rather than sharing that full raw link, you know, uh, like your example, uh, you know, cdn.ampproject.org and then, you know, slash, you know, cnbc.com, it will go ahead and 
undo and unravel that information and say, oh, let me just send them the cnbc.com link itself, which I think is nice. It makes the, the, the links look cleaner, like a way cleaner than what you would see with an AMP link. And it's kind of an interesting sort of way. It's like when you have uh, stuff that has uh, like market uh, marketing tracking stuff in it, like UTM right, source yeah. uh, query params and stuff. Uh, I really love it when things like the Clips app that I or extension that I use will give me a clean link that I can put into something like our show notes rather than, you know, if I got something off of some mailing list and I wanted to oh, share with, with people stuff, here, yeah, whatever, yeah. it wouldn't have all of that and I wouldn't have to manually remove it. So I, I kind of appreciate what iOS 11 will do here. Yeah, nice. No, you're right. I mean, like if I want to look at a reader version of a, a website, you know, just to get the skinny of it, I, I would like to make that decision myself rather than having it made for me, which is what this sounds like, right? Right. And the, the user experience admittedly has gotten better with AMP pages, but what it's, what it does is it, it puts this sort of like header at the top of the web page mm-hmm. that to my eyes makes it a little bit confusing as to what's going to happen. Like, okay, how do I get to the original link or how do I go to that website? Originally it was like, Oh, sorry. You wanted to see more stuff at Ars Technica. No, you, uh, you hit this back button and you go back to Google, which is mm-hmm. not what I wanted. Or if you hit this X, you go back to Google. It's not what I wanted. And Google's um, addressed some of that feedback, but I, I still find it kind of confusing myself if I want to like go find more details or share links to stuff, uh, as we mentioned. Right. What's this thing you pasted in the, in the chat here? Is that about the same thing? Or, yeah, that was the specific article. article that I think you were talking to about. Yeah, I, I pasted uh, Federico's um, Oh, his tweet. tweet. Okay, yeah, sorry, I didn't see that, tweet that Yeah, because I just saw the AMP part, and I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But thanks for explaining it to me and all the, all the listeners up there who didn't know. FCC approves Amazon whole purchase of Whole Foods. Do we care? Yes, no. Other than a funny quip about how the only way Apple could compete is by purchasing Trader Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, so for me, this perspective is that this is them taking on Walmart because Walmart's had food forever, right? They've had food for the last, you know, 20 years, I guess, right? Um, with their superstores and whatever. At least in Canada, I'm sure they have them down in the States as well, right? The super Walmarts. Yeah, yeah well, the grocery Walmart side. Food and, and Whole Foods food are pretty different things oh i i know that i know that for a fact walmart Mar- walmart goods and anybody else's goods are a different thing as well but you know, yeah. pe- people don't see that when it comes to like saving five bucks right 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 but the, the whole idea behind Whole foods is not about saving money it's about spending a whole lot of money to get high quality stuff uh in terms so of whole foods, you mean? Yeah? whole foods yeah whole okay. foods yeah so do you think that right, amazon Amazon's going to get into the into the delivering of food, or what's what, or is it just a a stock play, or like a like why why would they merge with these guys? Good question. Uh, you know, Amazon did try a while back to do the uh, the the real time ordering model, where you actually go and pick stuff up, right? Right. Oh, okay. Uh, pretty much in real time. So it might be something along those lines, where right. you know, Whole Foods is. I mean, it's it's a big supermarket chain uh, with lots of sites. So so maybe they can use those as an extension of their warehouses to, to have uh, you, know, you order stuff online right away and you can just pick it up immediately. Or maybe they or maybe they deliver it as well. Yeah, we have Whole Foods here in Canada too. Yeah, so that's good for everybody, I guess, right? And about, the reason I remember Whole Foods is you guys were talking about uh, Apple Pay when it first came in a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't know if Whole Foods was working or was a challenge or something for one of you guys. No, it works. It's all. It's it was one of the first ones to have it, and it's always worked great. Cool. Yeah, because they have the, uh, or at least at the time, they had the margins to, to make that work. They had the kind of customer that would pay for something like a brand new iPhone and would, of course, therefore want to mm-hmm. use the Apple Pay when it was brand new. Yeah. 
So is um, is it a big deal that the FCC has announced that they're approved this thing? Or from a technology perspective, not so much, um, except for the fact that you know there's a, a lot of discussion, at least here in the states. I don't know if it's spread out there uh, further than that. About are some of these companies getting like a little too big, right? So oh, right, Apple's yeah. in there, Amazon, Google, Facebook, uh, Microsoft to some extent, where it's beyond just like okay, well, are they huge in even as large a sector as technology? Now they're stepping into other things like food, uh, groceries. What else are they getting? They're getting into, you know, music, movies, TV, all of these other things. It's sort of like, well, you know, is everything going to be done through these like handful of companies, this like oligopoly of of companies that could control everything. So there is not distinctly a tech angle other than the the quip I mentioned about, you know, Apple having to compete by purchasing Trader Joe's and and, and, and go with it. It's more like uh, sort of the broader cultural discussion about where these companies fall um, in their relationship to consumers. Mm -hmm. I'll have to keep an eye on that one. Yeah, next uh, bit of follow-up we have is um, I think some people have done some some conjecture and thinking and calculating and figuring out that Apple normally makes their iPhone announcements in the in September and usually on a Tuesday. And so they've come up with the idea that it'll be on the 12th of September that Apple may make an announcement. Um, there's a link here from TechCrunch about that. Um, the 5th is, was another date that it could have been, but I think that they're thinking that's too close to something or else to make that viable. So it could be September 12th that we hear about uh, whether there's going to be a new iPhone Super Burrito Supreme, right? Burrito just Supreme? the Burrito Supreme. Yeah, I just <laughs> I went down the Super Channel, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> The one with the Doritos shell. Oh, it's going to be triangular, I think? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it'll, power. it'll come with a bunch of uh, dips and stuff like that. Yeah, that'll be <laughs> awesome. Ooh, a new watch with LTE. We talked about that last week. Let's not go there again. Um, right, and an well, Apple Apple TV with uh, 4K support, supposedly, which... Oh, nice, yeah, yeah. Would make a lot of sense. It's probably about time that they have that, just to make sure that there's longevity for the Apple TV sure. device. Um, 4K TVs are still kind of expensive, but there's a bigger push to get more content out there, especially driven by stuff like Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon Video really trying to push out um, 4K content. So I think it's... Wait, they're not supporting about, 8K TVs? What's... what's what, What's wrong with them? <laughs> That's a good question. I have seen an 8K <laughs> TV, I think, sitting at like flies yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah, so, there's new ones. Yep. yep. Yeah. A, a never ending journey towards a, increasing the fidelity of our video, I guess. Well, maybe people couldn't hear that we were talking about Apple Watch with LTE last week, but, you know, we should give them benefit of the doubt. We did talk about that. Anywho, um, yeah. Anything else about uh, September twelfth? Any? No. I mean, it seems reasonably timed to me. I kind of remember one being around September eleventh um, last year or the year before, so it, it feels about right. I think it's that second week of September that they they tend to have it be, you know, after yeah. Labor yeah. Day. Yeah. Some people are suggesting, or TechCrunch is suggesting, you mark your calendars uh, for September twelfth. So are they accounting for all the rumors of delays or? No. See, that's the other thing. Assume that that the delay are not happening. That's an interesting take because I I think you can have both be true, even though I don't know for a fact that there's any sort of delay. So you could say, hey, guess what? We've got an iPhone 7S and an iPhone 7S Plus, both available for pre-ordering, you know, this Friday, whatever it is after the 12th, like the 15th, and then it'll be in your hands like the week after, right? I think that's what they usually do. And say, oh, but if you want an iPhone Burrito Supreme, um, you can pre-order that on Friday, but you won't get it until, you know, November 13th or something, or December. Yeah. 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 
You know, it takes a long time to get the refried beans, beans just the way you like them, I guess, right? So, you don't want to mess those up. That's that's the whole foundation. Well, who knows? Apple may decide to come announce the new Apple choke chain on uh, September 12th, for all we know, right? Okay. I don't bump. The what? <laughs> I'm unclear, Tim, when you say a choke chain, <laughs> just as an aside here, because <laughs> I want to make sure I have the right thing in my head. Are you talking well, about like, the kind that they neck. use for dogs when you're like training them? Or <laughs> do you mean like the kind that like uh, goth girls hot, will wear? Hot that's chicks like in the 70s used to wear them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. So more, more close to like the goth girls kind I'm of. I'm sure it has thing. another name. Yeah. 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 Hang on. I, gotta I think it's called the choker. I'm not sure if it's a choke chain, but. Yeah. No, I don't know. I've heard choker. Yeah. That's how it came out. So the cat is taken to sitting at the top stair, stair of the downstairs and just howling at the top of his throat. Lots of fun. Okay. Um, hmm. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, th- th- let's move on to the main topics. And so, Jaime, you got one here that's confusing all of us. So why don't you try try to explain it to us? Yeah, I've read this twice and um, I'm not going to pretend that I understand all the implications that are being talked about. Uh, this is concurrency in Swift, one possible approach. It is a, a proposal by Chris Latner, who you may remember as being being one of the key contributors to Swift, went to Tesla and is now at Google. And it covers the concurrency um, model that Swift sort of needs if it's going to be a, you know, a language that we're going to use for more than just iOS development, if we're going to use it in, you know, uh, contexts that that grow beyond just Macs, um, more than just client-side iOS type stuff, but become more like a server language where you don't want to necessarily be dependent on what the operating system provides for you, right? right? And it's actually pretty well-timed for this one, um, at least for me personally, because, uh, you know, last week we were at 360i Dev and I attended um, Ben DeFrancisco's um, talk about uh, threads, queues, and things to come, the present and future of concurrency in Swift, which sort of hypothesized what some of the different possibilities might be uh, after he discussed, you know, um, GCD and, and in its operation and how those work together uh, today. And so in this, uh, what is it, five-part sort of vision here of how might this thing sort of work and what sort of building blocks would be necessary to get to the state he's, he talks about and also sort of how these things um, interplay with other bits. Like, well, you kind of need a, a memory model of, of ownership within Swift to be really solidified before you go too far uh, down this road where you want to understand, well, okay, um, which thing owns which thing and which things live and die based on the existence of other things that um, are sort of critical to language, right? And uh, as we march towards ABI stability, hopefully in Swift 5, you know, Swift 4 is about to become uh, ready for prime time in, in what, September, I guess it'll actually be blessed as uh, as being ready. People can use it today, of course, because it's open source and, and the Xcode tooling supports it. I think the two things that I want to uh, focus on are the, the, the two pieces that build on each other, because from the 360 iDev conference talk that Ben gave, he hypothesized that, oh, maybe we might do something like async await, which is something that's used in um, uh, like the C-sharp world, or maybe there'll be actors as a model, uh, which is being used by Erlang. And it turns out that Chris Latner, like a day or two later, probably after the conference, is like, hey, here's this thing. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm kind of proposing we use both, which is sort of a, a, hmm. a technique I hadn't really thought about. So the whole reason for this is is kind of set up pretty early on in this article, uh, not pr- proposal, about like asynchronous APIs being difficult to work with. So he gives an example of the quote-unquote pyramid of doom you might end up with, where let's say you have some sort of function that wants to process image data, but at first it needs to get you know one resource off the network, and then it needs to get another one, and then it needs to take those two things and decode, and then it needs to do another operation to, you know, transform the image further 
and then finally say, oh, by the way, all the way nested down is a thing sort of indent to the right, thus the Pyramid of Doom. We have got this completion block that says, oh, yeah, now finally do something with that, that final thing. And it makes error handling sort of weirdly difficult and awkward. And I've certainly written code that looks something like this, where it's like, all right, I, I know I don't need like the full sort of uh, force and power that like an NS operation setup would require. It, it's really just a smaller set of things. But you end up having to do this weird boilerplate um, guardlet sort of dance between each of your areas to make sure you can appropriately handle error conditions. Uh, and, and the other thing he mentions is that the description of where things occur on, like in terms of queues, thinking, you know, background queues or the main queue uh, is not always obvious and is certainly a source of uh, potential bugs. As far as async and await goes, that first step, that first building block, he shows an example there where it's, it tries to make asynchronous code read sort of naturally as you know, serialized synchronous code. So you can have an example that he takes that rewrites that where you have that same function, but you say, all right, instead of this pyramid of doom, just say, look, I'm going to have this first resource that I'm going to get from the web. I'm going to await with the keyword there, await for that thing to come back. Okay, great. That thing's back. Cool. Now I'm going to take this other thing and await for it to be done. So he you know, loads the data, loads image resource, loads uh, a temporary image, which was a local operation and then does something with the result and finally returns. So it's almost like a, like the execution order is leaving like a little placeholder and says, Oh yeah, I'll, I'll come back to this when this is ready. Right. And sort of formalizes that for you. It makes it harder for you as a programmer to, to make, um, to do something wrong with, with your setup. The actors part sets it up as, um, actors being, I'm trying to think of what they would best be just described as it's essentially like a mailbox type system where, you know, each thing in your, your system, System that is an actor says, all right, people can interact with me via my little inbox here. If you want to let me know about something, great. Send me a message. That message can't be tampered with in, in sort of uh, any way because it's kind of just like fire and forget unidirectional. And I can do whatever I want with, with memory sort of internally, but I can only affect or affect the outside world by sending messages to somebody else, right? So there might be another actor that deals with things. And in this proposal, Chris Latner talks about the fact that, hey, that's great for making sure that you know actors don't um don't deadlock because there is no waiting for things it's just you know send off and go send off and go and if an actor gets stuck in some sort of way or becomes corrupted it can't bring down the rest of the system normally he says with caveats um because there isn't that sort of mechanism where everything is funneling through here it's just being handled asynchronously. And that's cool, but there are things you would want to do that using the pure actor model doesn't really do that well. Like uh, you might want to get some performance aspects or you might want to get some information sooner. So the reason these are not two competing proposals, um, like was talked about in, in Ben's presentation here, it's actually, well, extending the actor model through a wait. So he gives the, uh, like this table model example where it's acting, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it is an actor Actor, but it uses an await system to say, hey, uh, I'm going to get some information from somebody else and I'm just not going to do my thing until I, I get that information. That gives uh, some more flexibility, a little bit of performance aspects that he talks about with the downside and the caveat that it does break the purity of the semantics for the actor system that, okay, now you actually can cause a deadlock. Like uh, the trivial deadlock he does is he has the actor await on itself, which is like illogical, right? You should never ever do that, but it becomes possible. And he proposes that, well, 
there's some things that, you know, if they're very trivial, the compiler can diagnose and tell you, hey, hey don't do that. Don't call self, uh, self-await self because you're just going to be sitting there waiting for yourself forever. Um, or even for some uh, slightly more complex ones that there's uh, some sort of trap mechanism, which I, I don't know. It sounds like a very compilery type thing where it probably does some sort of heuristics to figure out if something is going to cause a deadlock. And then we'll give you information about that. So that's sort of the gist of, of what the proposal is about. It, it's it's pretty heady stuff. I don't know how long it took me to read through this the first uh, couple times, but it's not the sort of thing you're just going to bang through while you're you know waiting at the checkout line at uh, at Whole Foods. Um, you definitely want to set some time aside for that. Maybe you know do it while you're, you're having your cup of coffee in the morning and and maybe a little bit of your breakfast too. Um, it's not like a ten minute read. You you want to sit through and really understand it. I, I think the first two sections are probably the, the most interesting ones. And then if you really, really want to get into the level of detail of you know, how would this be implemented in Swift, I think you can read the three, four, and five uh, sections. What was your take on it, Mark? I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, I really like the fact that that uh, even though Latner was in, heavily involved in defining the syntax for Swift and, and therefore the Pyramid of Doom, uh, I think it's very... Uh, uh, forward thinking of him to be thinking beyond that and looking for solutions to that. So I, I kind of like the await syntax in that it's nice and clean. Uh, there's a couple of things that, that just immediately strike me as a little odd. Uh, it, to me, it looks like it's blocking. I know it's not blocking, but, but if I were just quickly looking at the code, I would kind of might have a tendency to think it's blocking or, or, uh, or the the other thing that I that I kind of don't like about it is it, it it seems like it removes some of the flexibility with a with a closure syntax you get a lot of flexibility you can you can change the uh, the inputs and have multiple inputs and and you know you can have return values and things like that but with the the await syntax as posed it's just let you know one return value equal await and then a function. Uh, that takes some properties, takes some arguments. So uh, maybe in the final version it will be more flexible, but it but it feels like that might be a little bit limiting. You know, what if you have multiple uh, return values? What if you have multiple exit points from the closure? It, it's it's not clear to me that that's as flexible as you, as you might want it to be in some sophisticated cases. But for sure, the value you gain in readability is is there. You know, getting rid of that pyramid of doom is is a is a huge step forward. So so yeah, so I, I like the I like the ideas he's talking about. Uh, we'll just have to see what actually happens in in reality. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree uh, with what Mark's talking about, and that it while formalizing things makes a lot of things great and possible. It also is somewhat more restrictive too. So I think as an analogy, I think of uh, sort of the sexy thing to do in Swift nowadays is to use a result type where you have a like dot success case and a dot error or failure case. Mm-hmm. Like for example, for network requests, and it works generally pretty well, and it makes it pretty easy instead of having to do a lot of sort of extra boilerplate just to have a look look. T- did, this, did I successfully get this JSON object from the network or did I not? Except for the cases where I've run into where I, I kind of need an in-between where it's neither a success nor a failure per se. It's kind of more of a uh, like a warning condition that I might want to know about. That's a little bit more awkward to deal with with a result type that's very heavily formalized, heavily codified versus rolling it yourself. So I, I definitely agree with what Mark's saying there in that while this is great, um, it doesn't solve all 
all of those problems and it does miss out in some of the flexibility you have with the raw closure sort of syntax. Hmm. What are your thoughts, Tim? It sounds to me like what you're saying is that it's, it's almost like, it looks like a, isn't it like a serialized queue or a thing you're waiting for things to happen before you can continue? Isn't that the idea that he's proposed this await syntax says? It, it kind of looks that way, although I think it's not really implemented that way under the hood, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, it def- but it definitely has that look for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's a list of things that have all happened serially, uh, as far as the code is concerned. Yeah, I think the other thing to to look at for folks um, beyond the first two sections that I mentioned is the learning from other concurrency designs, where he talks about pony um, aka or aka actors in Scala and Go and Rust, and how they deal with concurrency and how they've taken different approaches and made different trade offs. Okay, well, probably suitably confused our listeners. So where are we here? Yeah, it shouldn't be surprising because concurrency is definitely one of those difficult problems that nobody yeah. has really, really solved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I guess, uh, well, I, I heard about this from Jaime, so I'll let you carry on about the uh, the cookie purchases. <laughs> yeah, that was me being <laughs> being cute and saying it's time to buy some Oreos. This, of course, was on Monday during the uh, solar eclipse uh, here in North America, where Google decided this was a really good day and time to announce the official name for Android 8.0, which is named Oreo after the uh, the brand name of sandwich cookie. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of similar to their KitKat sort of branding they had, except as far as I can tell, they, they really haven't played it up as much as they did with KitKat, where you know they had specially branded KitKats that you could go buy, and they sort of pushed it really hard here. This was sort of a weird thing. Like I waited for the event, you know, I went to the YouTube channel for the live stream, and it had like a thirty minute countdown, and then I came and watched, and it was like two minutes of really awkwardness where they had a live stream of uh, the unveiling of the official Android statue, like the kind they have at Google's campus, you know, the you know, dessert treat um, themed sort of thing. In this case, the, the Oreo, uh, sort of like a superhero uh, looking kind of character um, with an Oreo body. And then it was like, okay, thanks, bye. And they were done after they showed a quick little uh, video that, that you'll see on, on this uh, linked page. That was uh, that during the notes. eclipse that they did this? Yeah, I don't remember the exact time. Um what time did you say it was? For roughly? here for here in the Pacific Northwest, it was probably just after the peak because I think I think I went out, you know, for about half an hour ish, maybe an hour, uh, leading up to the peak, just after the peak, and then I said, "All right, it'll look the same, just in reverse." Um, and came back inside <laughs> and went to, <laughs> watched the uh, the the live stream here uh, for the unveiling. So yeah, I think, um, I think for you guys, it went through the eclipse was around eleven thirty or so in the morning. Or right? yeah, I think peak time yeah, was like ten twenty ish, ten thirty. So yeah, yeah. right, right. And we're in Seattle. Were you like going to get the full eclipse or no? We got Oregon? to like ninety two percent. You had to be not. Even in in Portland, you had to be a little bit south in like Salem, I think, for for full uh, full darkness. Yeah, for us it was about seventy percent. Yeah, I think same here and too. It, yeah. And it was overcast in most places around here. Unfortunately, we could see it, but it was it wasn't uh, it wasn't so impressive because of the, the overcast. Well, it was nice and clear here, and um, so I, I have it. I got a telescope for my birthday a couple of years ago, so I put that up on the roof of the house. And then I, you know, I don't know if you know, you can put a piece of wood, like a board or something, and and use the telescope to focus on the board, so you don't have to look at the sun. You look at the board, yep. and so you could see that it was kind of cool watching the the moon move across. And I, I took Carol's iPad and made a time lapse uh, video of it, so you can see that on my Twitter feed. But yeah, it was interesting. I mean, you know, when when heavily heavenly objects move in, in into our path, it kind of uh, it's kind of a little uh, little beyond our ability to process, right? Mentally, <laughs> yeah. 
So it's kind of cool. It's interesting because I noticed that when I was on the roof, when the sun was at full full tilt, you know, it was it was hot. I had my hat on. I had to wear shoes because it was uh, it was quite warm. And then uh, when when we were at full peak, um, it was like I was it was still bright, like it wasn't darker, but but the sun definitely didn't feel as warm. It was more like with the sun on a winter day. You know, so like I didn't feel like overly hot or anything like that, and and of course the birds were like just quiet, like they'd all been really quiet, which was kind of weird. So yeah, I got to essentially see it for free because I purchased some uh, solar eclipse glasses uh, specifically for this event uh, via Amazon, and I guess even though it had the ISO rating on it, and it as far as I could tell seemed to come from a legitimate supplier, Amazon decided that it could not verify that it was a legitimate supplier, so they gave me my money back for these things, and uh, they seemed to work. Like it. it first when i tried them on at home i was like oh my god like i've been scammed like i can't see a damn thing with these things it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like i don't think these are even see-through you know somebody's like tricked me and this is just like cardboard yeah and then i said wait maybe it's like you know the sort of things that like welders wear like you know i've yeah, seen uncles yeah. that that did welding work it was really dark so i decided to turn on my iphone flash like the torch mode permanently and i just looked and i was like oh i can i can barely even tell that it's there so then i kind of stepped it up to like a light bulb and then i said all right let me take a quick look at the sun you know certainly done that as a kid it shouldn't be too damaging for a brief uh, millisecond here and it looked like it worked perfectly I mean, no no troubles whatsoever so i was very pleased with that uh fortuitous sequence of events nice nice so let me get this straight you've never done any welding i've never done welding but i've had uncles that uh, that did do welding so you know of really? course when you're a little kid you're like oh i want to see what it lo- what does it look like through the mask and right, it, it looks right. really it doesn't look like anything at all right it's like, this yeah. is a joke yeah yeah and what about you mark you ever done any Welding? I've never done welding, but I've done silver soldering, oh, okay. which is similar. Does it, do you use a flame, and is it like bright or? Yeah, I use a torch and oh, okay. uh, and and uh, silver's so actual silver solder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've done I've done tons of welding because of sculpture, but um, and um, industri- we used to call it industrial arts in school, like working on cars and stuff. But um, and so brazing is you can kind of you can see what's going on. It's like really dark green glasses. But when you're arc welding, you can't see anything until the arc actually lights up. And I think looking into the sun is kind of looking into an arc. <laughs> so mm-hmm. hey, same idea, right? Lots of kelvins and whatever they're whatever you measure light with lumens, lumens. Lumens, yeah, many, many, very, very hot. Um, yeah. So going back to Android, yeah, it makes it makes you wonder if they kind of didn't want people to pay attention, and and I wonder looking at their web page uh, with with the what's new in in this version, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot that's new mm-hmm. uh, compared to one or well compared to just a a general iOS re- or, or general release. I mean, it's so the first thing I'm talking about, and I'm not sure what who thought of this uh, choice of words, but the first first feature is swift moves behind the scenes. No way. That's what they say. It's literally uh, what I'm looking at it right now. It says yeah, that. So it's, swift move so it's, commas behind the scenes. Right. So it's faster right. tasks, uh, nice. which is okay. That's that's always good. The second one is autofill, which is nice, but not what I would consider a major feature of a, of a new uh, release. The third one, I think, is quite cool. Uh, it's picture-in-picture. Picture. So it actually lets you put a second app in a little picture-in-picture picture box in front of, in front of uh, an app that you have in the foreground. We have that on iOS, though, already. On the iPad. I don't believe we have that on on the iPhone, which in this case they're showing it what appears to be a Google Pixel phone. Mm -hmm. Does the iPad have actual picture-in-picture? 
Yeah, yeah. If you're watching a YouTube video or whatever, and you and you, I guess might be part of the multitasking. If you switch to another app, it shrinks to a mm-hmm. uh, lower right hand corner. You can move it around into whatever corner oh. you want. But yeah, yeah, we have that in. We've had okay, that. Okay, I, I know we have that in Safari, but I didn't realize we had that on the iPad. I don't have yeah. an iPad Pro, so I so I haven't. No, I think it's feature, I it's regular iPad as well. Any any multitasking iPad. Hmm. Whatever right. that is. In this case, though, the example they show appears to be like a FaceTime equivalent. It's probably Google yeah. Duo that they're using. And I don't recall any version of iOS in any circumstance having that ability. I, I don't know. I haven't tried doing like a, a FaceTime at the same time as, uh, I don't know, browsing the web or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have to give it a shot. But, you know, report back. Yeah. And then the fourth feature they're advertising is, is titled Dive Into More Apps With Fewer Taps. I guess there's some new navigation modes that let you go into apps more quickly and notifications show up as dots somewhere and you can tap on them to, to in quickly go into apps. So that's it. Those are the four main new features for this version. Uh, apparently there's a, there's a bunch of smaller things that are listed below, like like a bunch of new emojis. But, you know, whenever, whenever emojis are one of the, the top new features, you have to worry a little bit, right? Uh, well, Google, Google, Pay, <laughs> Google Play Protect is a big thing, too. I think, I'm think i not sure. I thought they already had that, but this is um, they're going to be able to scan apps within the apps within their app store, their Google Play store, to see whether they're legit or not. And that's another another enhancement that's coming with, uh, with I yeah. guess, with this version. Yeah, yeah. So, but but overall, it, it doesn't feel like it's a huge new release with lots of groundbreaking new things to me. Right, right. Was well, this related to what they would have talked about at Google I.O. a few months ago, Jaime? Yeah. It, it, in fact, um, these things were known prior to the event I, I mentioned um, because they talked about it at I.O. and they've had their developer preview for a while. This event was um, predominantly about the the actual name. It was just known as Android O. Right, um, right. You know, 8.0. Yeah. Now it actually has the, the uh, dessert treat name to it. In this case, Oreo. Oreo. Yeah, right. Last one was uh, Nougat. And the one prior was Marshmallow, Lollipop, pop and so on and so forth going back um but yeah mark's right like you know normally i'd say like well okay these these operating systems are kind of getting to the point where they're so mature you're not going to have fantastic new things right like take high sierra for example i literally can't remember anything that's new in it even though i'm sure there's going to be stuff i will enjoy when i install right? drag and drop it, drag and drop there's like these like these things oh, wait, that, oh okay that, that, that's that's great that shows up you know on the tin somewhere it's like oh now with core animation oh, okay cool that that's good you know um it's certainly not as sexy as AR kit or the drag and drop that you mentioned um, for the iPad that are uh, much more significant changes, even in a very mature operating system like iOS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, I've been playing around. With, I've got the um, beta five or six, whatever, installed on my my iPad. Ele- beta 11, 11 five, I think it is. Um, and you know, getting used to the dock and and uh, how to get your how to adjust the volume settings, all that sort of you know scrolling up from the bottom of the screen it behaves differently now on an iPad, and it's getting more towards what we used to look forward to as a pro operating system, if you want to call it that, or or, or an iPad specific operating system or version of, of uh, iOS that we've been talking about or wanting for many years, right? So yeah, and I think this gets to as a, a little bit of a side tangent here. You you briefly mentioned the iOS 11, uh, specifically with the iPad videos that Apple has come up with right, yeah. um, in advance of the actual release yeah, sometime that's odd, this, yeah. this fall. Well, it's, it's odd that they're doing it in, in advance of um, the thing, but right now isn't in, it's in public beta, right? So people are seeing it, right? Right. And I think that's part of the thing too, right? Like they, I think they'll clearly want a lot of the focus on the iPhone um, going into the September event, but they also, you know, they want you to like not forget the fact that the iPad exists and please go buy one. And right. oh, by the way, 
say uh, iOS 11 will make it even better. So right, yeah, you know, yeah. save your pennies. No, from a marketing point of view, it makes it makes sense to to put it out there to sort of say, hey, you know, the future is brighter. If you've if you if you've been sitting on the fence about updating your iPad or getting a new one or or even buying one all, or outright, right? So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, don't forget that at WWDC this year, there was a lot more about the iPad than there was about the iPhone, actually. Oh, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, all the drag and drop stuff, and and uh, and the the the. The things you can do with the pencil and writing and, and transcribing and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I guess we'll move on to picks now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So Jaime, do you have a pick for us? I do. And it's uh, technically follow up too, because my pick is um, a GitHub repository that has the slides and presentations and a little bit of code uh, possibly linked for the 360 iDev 2017 conference. So if you weren't able to make it, um, I don't think all of the information is there, but there, a large majority of it is. And then people are backfilling with with pull requests from the, the different speakers. So uh, I think a lot of this information will probably end up being posted on the official 360 site. Uh, but while we're waiting for the conference videos, uh, session videos themselves to come out and be available, you can go take a peek at some of the presentations or even just some of the code examples. Oh, so we could pull up, do a pull request to get our slides in there too? Yeah, I think we could. I don't think anybody's put ours in there. I don't see it. Um, it's not always necessarily the speakers. I think the initial part of it was pulled from the uh, presentation materials channel from the right, right, yeah. conference Slack. So I uh, wouldn't be surprised if uh, if folks were, were able to see it. But I don't I don't see it on here because I don't think our slides were on there at the time that he did that pull. So uh, continuing to update, I think, for this resource. Good to know. That's kind of cool. Yeah, there was some really good uh, good code samples and some good talks. Or, I mean, without the videos, it's kind of uh, lost, right? So like yeah, some that. of them were a little tough. Like I did share internally with my uh, with my own team mm-hmm. um, the one on um, the LLDV model store or sc- oh. scaling uh, the, the advanced LLDV one. I've not shared with them because I want to set that up in my own scheme. And I actually, as an aside, that was um, Ijaz Ansari's talk mm-hmm. about extending the LLDB debugger in Xcode with Python, uh, yeah. Python scripts. I've already used the uh, JQ. That's a JSON uh, command line tool that lets you like, you know, do all sorts of nifty cool things to go and slice and dice JSON beyond just prettifying it. You know, you can say, Hey, take, you know, take this five megabyte response from the server. And, uh, I don't really know much about what this is because I'm reverse engineering, you know, my own team's app because I wasn't necessarily there. Uh, let me see what all the keys are for this JSON. Oh, okay. Well, let me go get everything with the description key but that also has a attachments um, array and then show me all of those, uh, the UUIDs for each one of those things that has that sort of, uh, um, that, that meets that sort of query example. And that's super powerful. And the other thing I've installed is the Facebook chisel tools that, that we're talked about. And they're just amazing. Like some of them don't work that well, uh, but some things like, Hey, uh, just put a border around this thing. Like, you know, show spit out all of the, the view hierarchy. Great. Now I've got the memory address of this one tricky UI element that's not reacting the way I wanted to. Put a border around it. Show me where it is. The sort of thing that works, I think, really well in, in sort of confluence with the uh, visual debugger you get out of Xcode. Not like a replacement for, but it, it gives you a lot of cool tools. Uh, present a view controller from from this circumstance, or dismiss this view controller, and like twenty other tools that I've not actually gotten around to, to trying out within Chisel. So that was one of the sessions that I highly recommend people sit and um, watch when the session videos come out, and and maybe you might be able to get a little bit of that flavor from. 
iJazz's uh, presentation, and I think he has a blog post to link from his GitHub uh, code uh, sample. Yeah, like, it's, cool. it's, it's totally worth it. Like, like that right there alone is, is is worth the price of admission. Yeah, that was that was a bit uh, one of the first pieces of, of witchcraft at the thing. The other one was Der- or Derek's talk, right? Has he got his stuff on here? Wednesday. Afternoon? I'm not sure, but his was pretty much all demo. So you need the video itself because, right. as you mentioned, they're uh, reverse engineering the iOS simulator springboard. There is sample code here, but uh, his presentation, like it, it, it basically was like voodoo or witchcraft sorcery um, with the the things he was able to do in a like a reverse engineering sort of way to um, the iOS simulator and getting it to do things that you wouldn't think were possible to do. Right, right. Yeah, I had to miss half the the afternoon talks on Wednesday as I had to go to the airport, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. I'm, I'm, I mean, one of the things we talked about last week, of course, maybe people didn't hear us again, was that uh, there were four tracks sometimes, so you know, it were really hard to choose between which talk you wanted to go to um, during the during the week, right? So during the three days. Sad to say. All right. So, Mark, do you have a pick for us? I do have a pick. Uh, my pick is a article, an article uh, in Medium.com called "Why Is." ARKit better than the alternatives, and it's actually a little bit more than that. It's it's sort of uh, hiding the lead a little bit because he, he does really a nice introduction of what ARKit is uh, for for beginners and and what some of the key features like what is VIO and how does it work and 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 what are some of the details about that. Uh, but then it does go into a comparison to some of the major competitors like Tango uh, and and compares you know some of the features between. ARKit and and those and uh, kind of comes to the conclusion that ARKit is is in some ways better than Tango because it's more tied to the hardware and so VIO is visual. Uh, uh, oh, what's the I? Hold on one second. Inertia. Inertial. Yeah, vis- visual. So ARKit has VIO, which is visual inertial odometry, which basically means it combines the input from the cameras with the input from the sensors like the accelerometers and the and the and the rotation sensors and, and things like that to give you a, a, a better uh, representation of what's going on in three D. So AirKit has a real advantage in that since the since Apple is so tied in with their own hardware, uh, it has really good access to the inertial system and to the sensors and can do a lot of good error correction to give you a really nice three D map of of the world around you with really with just one camera, uh, which is which is kind of a cool thing, you know, because a camera is measuring a two D representation of the world, but yet it's able to build a three D map of the world of what's of the objects around you. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and it's really doing it. It's it's not really using the camera just as a two D representation. It's, it's using uh, multiple frames separated a small amount of time with knowledge from the inertial sensors to tell how the frame has changed to, to construct a 3D map. So right. it's yeah. actually a really cool thing. Uh, so so uh, Tango suffers because it's purely a software solution. It's not tied to any particular hardware. So there's some advantages there. Uh, also, there's, there's things like Vuforia, which so has the same kind of problem. And uh, so, you know, I have to confess, I haven't gone through the entire article and all the details, but it looks like there's a lot of cool stuff. If you have an interest in AR kit, which I think probably almost everyone does at this point, definitely worth a read, definitely worth checking out. 
Yeah, I was playing around with the, um, I was watching the uh, talks at com. There's some uh, screencasts that Brian Moakley has done on ARKit. So I've been playing with it on my iPad because I've got iOS 11 on it again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of cool the way it sort of maps the room. I think, you know, like you, you sort of alluded to, the initial uh, sensors are the, gy- are the accelerometer and the gyroscope, right? Right. Um, and as, so as you move the, the iPad around, it kind of maps like, you know, your desk or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some cool demos that, uh, some of the game jam people did at 360 iDev as well, and there's a book coming out soon from um, the way we're like people on their, their iOS 11. I think the first bunch of chapters have been released for that actually. So now, th- now they say that, but yeah, it's kind of cool stuff. I, as you know, I'm a huge AR fanatic, right? So uh, I've been playing around with it as much as I can. So kind of yeah. neat stuff. And, really and cool. Yeah. Here, in, here in Silicon Valley, yeah, AR is kind of the the new hotness. Really? Uh, everybody's talking about AR and. Uh, either fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, a lot of small startups are really in bad shape now because Apple came along and put this out. Oh, and, really? And did a did a real nice job with it, actually. Sherlock them all, right? Yeah, sure, kind of Sherlock them all. Yeah, yep. So, so machine learning is so like last month kind of thing, or? Well, machine learning <laughs> is a is a is a fundamental piece of this. It's, an, oh, it's, okay. it's for sure an enabling technology for this. Yeah. And it works hand in hand. Right, so right. it's it's one thing to recognize shapes uh, in the world around you, uh, but if you can if you can figure out what those shapes are with machine learning, then you've really got something powerful. Mm, cool stuff. Yeah. Yep. Neato. Right. Yeah, I'll have to read this one. It's quite a lengthier article. I can't really just like skim through it. But yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting that one of the key points I see here is not that AR kit is necessarily like, oh, wow, this is the groundbreaking leader, uh, even though it is uh, in some respects you know, ahead in some areas. There is stuff like like the Microsoft HoloLens that you know, when you have the full setup is uh, a bit more powerful. Oh, sure. Um, but I think... But that requires sophisticated hardware that, that we don't have, it, just a, a cell phone. Yeah, exactly. So it's the democratization side of it that, like, uh, you know, uh, Hololens is what mm, almost two years old. Maybe it just passed two years, mm-hmm. um, but it, it hasn't made the dent into you know making AR available for everybody uh, that even the iPhone would do. Right? Um, it, it's sort of like Apple is making it so that AR matters, like really, really matters outside of like you know niche industries and niche uses, but more like you know uh, everybody with an iPhone, assuming they have one. Is new enough, um, we'll have this. They'll have this capability, and it will be in uh, what, like a hundred million users' hands by uh, by a year from now. And no, that's, a couple, uh, a couple of months from now. Huge. Yeah, I was trying to like um, under promise, over deliver that one because I couldn't remember <laughs> <laughs> exactly how big. But, but you're right; it, it's going to be tens of millions, and you know, uh, closer to hundreds of millions very, very soon. That's that's huge. That's uh, uh, you know, rapid and, and industry changing. And I think sort of the the second wave that we'll see for AR democratization will be when the Android side catches up in terms oh, of the, right. the OEMs we hear, right? They talk about somewhere in the article about like, hey, you know, Tango's had this and the manufacturer said, no way, that's, that adds more cost, adds more difficulty to my phone. Um, I don't I don't really see a need for this. But as ARKit and, and the stuff that Apple implements uh, hardware-wise becomes um, more desirable as a feature and sort of becomes table stakes and also the manufacturing side catches up where I mean, whoever it is that's building these things for uh, for Apple, like the um, economies of scale start taking into play. I was like, yeah, of course, everybody's got an 
an AR kit chip in inside, right? Like it's, it's, it's super cheap. Like you can't even order a phone without it anymore because it's integrated into the, the system, right? It's like not even right. like a separate chip anymore. Like that will be the thing where like everybody effectively has it. It's sort of a, like a two wave sort of thing, right? Like, uh, I think we've talked about in this show, like Apple with Apple Pay, like they didn't invent NFC payments, right? The NFC payments were there for quite some time before Apple Pay came out. Just kind of Apple made it matter. They made it like a real thing that you'll see people using out in the street. Right, right. Did you see the talk uh, by Japanese gentleman at 360i dev? He talked about um, uh, machine learning or deep learning. Was that Shuichi's? Because there were two different ones. There yeah. was one with TensorFlow and there was one yeah. with the Yeah, the, the first one, first one, Shuichi, right? Is that his name? Did you go I to did. that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he talked about, which I didn't realize, and this this is even even self-driving cars are using this technology to map the road in front of you kind of thing, right? They're, they're using combinations of, you know, AR kind of technologies and and machine learning to sort of figure out what where you're navigating on the road, what's in, what objects are in front yeah, of you. Yeah, exactly. Kind of cool, yep. yeah. Com- yeah. Computer, computer vision stuff we were talking about before, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, neat stuff. Oh, sorry, I, just following up here, it was the deep learning on iOS session with uh, Shuichi Tsutsumi. Right. Where yep. he, he does talk a little bit about, like, um, MPS-CNN, the Metal Performance Shader Convolutional Neural Network, and BNNS, which we've talked about the show for sure, basic neural network uh, subroutines, and, you know, when you should use one versus the other. And there was a really, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, it was like, oh, uh, now that we have vision framework and we have, you know, this metal stuff, like, when would you use BNNS? And he asked an Apple engineer at the lab at WWDC 2017. Apple said, well, basically use MPS-CNN in the metal performance shader. I was like, uh, okay, but when should I use BNNS? Uh, I don't know. WatchOS might be a case you use BNNS as <laughs> WatchOS doesn't support. Right. Yeah, yeah. So the, right. So the cute little B, story there yeah. from the Apple engineer is crazy. Yeah, BNNS uh, doesn't doesn't support uh, hardware uh, hard, uh, hardware acceleration, whereas Metal does. Yeah, yeah. BNNS mm-hmm. is part of the Accelerate framework, which is purely in the CPU. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there was quite a difference in terms of expense in terms of doing those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the advantages of metal. It's interesting how all this stuff comes along. You know, a couple of years, like three years ago, it was like metal, and then you know, metal two, and and here we are now talking about uh, AR and yeah. machine yeah. learning. And actually, I would argue that that uh, for ninety percent of the, the use cases, uh, it's better to use ML Kit than either of those two. ML Kit, Core ML, you mean? Core ML. I'm sorry, Core ML. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I mean, that's what he was saying. That's the gist of his talk was: if you're doing something in iOS 10 today, then that's the way to go. But if you, if you, if he, he did urge people to sort of wait for iOS 11 if they, unless they couldn't wait. Right. The other talk on TensorFlow was was done by Tanya Pince, who's uh, one of the one of our um, taco heads here from. Uh, Toronto, and his talk was about how they've had to do machine learning uh, to sort of categorize um, images in a, in a like a I think it's flora and fauna kind of natural li- natural science database, and how they evolved in their projects through using core using machine learning, and now they're going to m- be able to use CoreML to do even more stuff with it. So, and sort of both of, both talks were kind of looking at where the current state is, like what's out in the world today, and then how you would use what's coming from Apple in September when they really iOS 11 and Mac OS 10, what are we, 10, 13, 12? I can't remember. What is High Sierra? 12? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. Let's see here. Sierra 
uh, is 10.12, so it must be 10.13. 13, okay. It's like the 13th Doctor and the 13th OS at the same time. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Well, my pick is a thing called Luna Display, which kind of got announced, I think, the last couple of days. Um, and it's, you know, they, they gave out some uh, units to some um, reporters in the press, and they've done some. Uh, iMore did a video. I think this is what I've got posted here from, I believe, Serenity Caldwell doesn't say. Um, anyway, so the idea behind, so I've talked about AstroPad before, which is a tool for your iPad that lets you use the iPad as an, as a mirrored screen for your, your, um, your Mac. So if you're working in Photoshop and you want to use a graphics tablet, like you would with the Cintiq, um, you could use your iPad pro with AstroPad installed, install a client on the Mac and install a client on your iPad and let's use your Apple Pencil as a pressure-sensitive uh, stylus and work in Photoshop. So it kind of mirrors what you see on the screen. So you have the pull-down menus and all that kind of stuff, just like you have like an, uh, a mirrored display. So what Luna does is it's a um, it's currently a Kickstarter project, but they they've manufactured a few of them and they they're doing the Kickstarter to get them into people's hands. But it's either a mini display port uh, adapter you plug it into the mini display port, or you plug it into a USB-C device like on the new Mac Pros, and it turns your your iPad Pro into a second display for your uh, Mac, which doesn't sound like much per se, but except that it's now a pressure sensitive, you know, all the features you get through AstroPad as a second display, you know, for your Mac. So, um, and they compare it in their video to Duo, which is, I think, another one that lets you use your iPad as a, as a, a second display, but um, it's much more interactive. And, and there's a talk of a, of a product they're coming out with called AstroPad Studio, I believe, which I'm not sure how that's going to work, but it may enhance experience a bit more so the lunar display looks really cool um another again another use for those of us who bought the big 12 inch um uh ipad pros and our apple pencils to be able to use the display or to use the actual ipad pro as a second display on our on our um max in fact i think in video in the video um wish i knew which one of these two authors wrote this our piece but in the video um she has her mac in one room and she has her ipad pro sitting in the living room you know so she's sitting on the couch using her mac remotely uh, as another option of, of optional way of using uh using the software so it's kind of cool does it have full pencil support you know yeah it does yeah that's the whole point behind it it has it has pencil support so you can use it as a, as a stylus um for your uh for your device Device, right, so the link for that is lunadisplay.com, and of course we'll put something in the uh, show notes. And again, it's a Kickstarter program. You can currently you can get uh, you can um, if you support them at a, at fifty nine dollars US, I believe you get that's twenty five percent off of what the actual uh, device will be worth when it goes when it hits the streets. So that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Sorry, it must be Wi Fi. Uh, the the thing that you plug in must be a, have a Wi Fi dongle on it. Is, is yeah, or or. Or Bluetooth, yeah. I guess I guess distance is the thing, right? So well, well, and and bandwidth. I don't think Bluetooth would have the the bandwidth to do a full high res display like that. Yeah, you know, I haven't really. I think it is Wi Fi because I haven't really played with AstroPad on my. I have it on my phone as well. Let me just open it on my phone. Um, but uh, can't remember how it connects to the Mac. Magic. I just thought it was Magic. AstroPad. Like, it reminds me of Astro Boy. Yeah, Astro AstroPad Mini is what they call it on the on the uh, phone. Let me call it AstroPad on my Mac. Real-time follow-up, folks. Pay no attention to the man behind the screen. Oh, I need to update. I need to do an update. Ah, I'll skip this version for now. Yeah, so how do you connect? I don't know. Yeah, it's magic. Yeah. Who knows? Put the little gear here. 
magic in the Arthur C. Clarke definition, right? Yeah, indistinguishable from magic. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I can you know move my finger around on my screen here and um, making marquees on my Mac. <laughs> yeah. So that's Astropad. Or sorry, Luna, Luna Display is a new product. Astropad is the pre-existing one. Right. With estimated delivery in May 2018. Of course, the normal caveats go with uh, Kickstarter projects. Yeah. Um, I do find this one pretty compelling though because you know I work remotely and you know the lack of a, a really good whiteboard mechanism oh, right, yeah. is, is sort of still stymieing me and you know I've considered like well okay I'm not going to go a full Cintiq thing that's a that's a little expensive to go um, could I get some like like a cheap uh, Wacom bamboo you know input device mm, maybe um, but having you know an iPad Pro that I already have and um, this 59 what $59 dongle here um, may not be that bad of a bad of an idea. Um, I think that's that's kind of neat and compelling. It's not so much money that I would feel terrible if something were to go awry, and it feels uh, rather inexpensive for the value I'll get out of it. Right, right. Another like another thing, like reading between the lines here, as I said before, at ninety nine dollar US pledge, you get Luna Display plus one year of AstroPad Studio, which makes me kind of go, are these guys moving to a subscription model as well? Sort of, because uh, mm. you know, currently I have AstroPad, and you know I can. Use Use it whenever I want, and that kind of stuff, right? So let's see what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think I definitely think that subscription software is, good, is the wave of the future, right? Yeah, yeah, but that's for AstroPad and, and I guess AstroPad Studio. It looks like those are like actual drawing programs. Oh, right? is that what it is? Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, th- that's the way I understand it. Um, in my case, I wouldn't need a drawing, you know, program per se. I, I, I need rather meager, limited whiteboarding powers, which would just be huge in terms of the things I could do with it. It's like, okay, yeah, I could use the mouse on my on my MacBook, and it's not that great. I would love to have um, the ability to use an Apple Pencil to draw out what I need and be able to explain you know, visually to other folks what I'm talking about. Right, right. Yeah. As some technical bits here at the bottom about uh, you know, using Luna Display taps into the GPU mark. So mm-hmm. that may be why they're, yeah, because you, so you can take advantage of metal, I guess, right? Yep. So, yeah, and if you go to their page, which I'll link into the, on the Kickstarter page, it explains all kinds of things about uh, what it is and how it works and so on and so forth. There's 2,000 of these things available in the Kickstarter program. Um, there's early birds where you can get a couple of them. There's AstroPad. So there is AstroPad Standard and there's AstroPad Studio. So I guess uh, for the high of the world who don't need the studio, there's that version of it, right? So, yeah. and the picture of the team. How about that? Cool. You can go all in with the $5,000 pledge level where you get Luna VIP, travel to Minneapolis or San Francisco and meet the founding team behind AstroPet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Enjoy dinner and lively conversation with the team. However, uh, airfare is not included, but you will get 10 units of the Luna display. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We just have to get our press credentials together so we can get free ones for, as well <laughs> to try out. <laughs> <Let's do that. laughs> review unit. Yeah, who knows? We'll get invited to Apple events and Mark can go over and be our uh, man on the scene. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it, I guess, for another week. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So, how many people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs? Where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. And Mark, if people want to get in touch with you, Mark R at Snapsoft.com or Snapsoft on Twitter. All right. And I am, uh, oh, I should say, you know, uh, as I said at the top of the show, I am Tim Mitra, T I M M I T R A on Twitter, but I'm also Tim T I M M I T R A on Mastodon, which is something we picked up at uh, 360 iDev. And my microblog identity is that as well, so micro.blog. So, yeah, if that's what you want to get a hold of me, Twitter is probably the best place. And like that, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. So Tim, I didn't. I knew you had the microdot blog thing going on because uh, mm-hmm. we went to that breakfast with uh, G McDonald. Sure. Um, I didn't know you had a mastodon instance too. No, it's it's funny. It was it was well, it was um, what's his name? Um, Jay Freeman, right? Uh, the guy who brought us uh, Cydia and uh, what do you call it? Jailbroken App Store um, tools. He was talking about uh, dystopia and how we're moving. You know. I guess with all these uh, services, you know, stealing our identities and keeping track of us and that kind of stuff. And Mastodon was one of the top products he talked about having um, basically lo- similar to Twitter, but it doesn't quite follow you per se, right? Is that not mis- Am I correct in thinking that? Sure. If you think of it as a distributed, possibly federated set of instances that give you a Twitter-like experience but mm-hmm. without critically, uh, to his point in his, um, that's how you get a dystopia, uh, what, keynote, I guess you would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not central. So um, you can't be sort of censored in any way, right? It's like, okay, maybe this one Mastodon instance doesn't want your kind of content. Well, whatever, I'll make my own instance. It's <laughs> sort of like email, right? No, people may decide not to receive my emails, but nobody can prevent me from sending out right. emails from my own domain, right? Right. Yeah. So I so during the uh, the talk, I uh, registered and set up my account so people can hit me up there. Um, <laughs> and I also I said I, I was a Kickstarter backer on um, um, what's that? one called uh, micro.blog mm-hmm. so I got a not quite a free account but I think I had a trial account for a little while um, to try that out and it's it ties in with your and of course this is Manton Reese you know the famously uh, un-Twitter guy he was the guy behind app.net right or, what, I or know propo- not he behind was he was proponent like a proponent was, but I don't yeah. think he was uh, developer wise behind right, it right yeah but he was very ha- he was unhappy with Twitter so he moved over to app.net and it went the way of all things right eventually yeah I think there's there's definitely an interest in these sorts of things because uh, I think as we were talking about during the show on, you know, uh, with the Amazon and Whole Foods sort of example. Yeah. Um, if you get booted from Twitter, um, what are your options really? Like if you wanted to have a, a, a broad reach, let's say, let's say Lady Gaga does something that makes Twitter really angry. And let's mm-hmm, say they mm-hmm. decide, you know what? I don't know if she's really like critical to our platform anymore and, and we can a- afford to boot her off. What would her recourse be? Uh, let's, uh, you know, ignore the legal side of it, right? Um, just, you know, while things are being fought in the courts um how does she reach her fans and i think something like a mastodon or a microdot blog are the only answers that i can think of uh, right now off the top of my head mm-hmm. and uh, i think the challenge for me with these things is that they're not as easy for um for like casual users right like i can't imagine lady gaga or her team setting up a mastodon instance just so they could do this sort of stuff like this there's some non-trivial things that that come into play when you reach her level of scale um and so I, I kind of feel like as we get um, 
more of these, you know, cloud services, cloud functions, and, and even stuff that you can, you know, roll and, and host your own sort of thing. The packaging of these things into you're essentially got an appliance that you can just say, great, this box right here, that runs my whole sort of infrastructure for my own personal use, right? And I, and I feel like as we get things like uh, Docker containers and, and Kubernetes and uh, serverless things like AWS Lambda or IBM OpenWhisk and whatever the Google Cloud function equivalent is, I think we're getting closer to that ideal where like computation is prevalent and everywhere and it's like the very air that we breathe. Right. Yeah. Mark's still using email though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's federated, right? I mean, Mark R at smapsoft.com, there's nothing, literally nothing anybody can do to prevent him from receiving and sending emails from his. That's true. Um, well, there's some, right? There's not like, oh, some, you know, some uh, customer support agent at Twitter decided, yeah, I really don't like at Smapsoft. Boom, apps and Mapsoft is gone. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Well, the ISP could, in theory, but wouldn't. Probably. Mm-hmm. Well, you two, you, uh, sorry, uh, Hotmail and Google ma- Gmail could block you as a spammer and that kind of stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. other than that, they can make it difficult for sure. But, but you know, um, even folks who have um, been left behind by the major DNS providers were still able to find somebody in the world mm-hmm. to provide service for them. So it would take a concerted effort, I think, to prevent uh, Mark Arts, Mapsoft.com from being, you know, usable in some fashion. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he could use it in his own domain anyway, no matter what you do, right? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, you Slack quite a bit these days, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, for work. Because it's hmm. the company's all Slack. Everything, everything's on Slack, so I have to. Yeah, yeah. No, I know the feeling. Yeah. It's not bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I don't know that I'm a, a fervent supporter of Slack. Uh, I'm not really buying into the uh, what cultish nature that some folks have yeah. around uh, that surrounds yeah. Slack. I think it, I like it better than HipChat, but I don't think mm-hmm. it's yeah. um, you know light years ahead of of, uh, of something like a HipChat to warrant. Uh, not only the sort of fandom that goes with it, but also sort of the um, that's valuation of the company that goes with it. That's why you prefer Twitter because there's there's no cultish nature around that at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's because there's no choice, man. Like I'm not going to host a Mastodon instance for this. Eh? We're, we're, yeah. It goes right into oh, it. Right. It's like it's seductively easy to be on Twitter, despite all the huge downsides it has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a, I use Slack, you know, every day for like the last three years or so. And, um, you know, and we have now have our own Slack for the podcast, but, um, I often wonder every time I log in or create a new account or somebody sends me a new thing, at one point I had like, I think I might be have accounts on like 10 or 11 different Slacks. I only look at like three or four of them at a time. There's just too much, but again, you're putting everything into this one basket. I don't know where Slack is, you know, I don't know where they're storing the, the data. It could be in on uh, Donald Trump's email server for all I know, right? You know, in terms of where it is. Could be in Russia. True. Could, mm-hmm. be, in, could be in Russia. Well, actually, it's, it's funny you say that because one of the things in, in Jay Freeman's talk, he talked about Pisma, which is that Prisma, which is that photo processing software that we talked about on the show a while ago where, where you upload an image and it turns it into sort of, you can use different artscapes to sort of turn it into like, make it look less like a photograph and more obfuscate it in, in a way by just processing it through these sort of arty filters. But initially, it was actually going to the their servers to do the processing. Now it does it on the device, but it was initially going to the servers, and it turned out the developer, in fact, was from Russia. So that's where the data was going. So you never know where this stuff is going to end up, right? Yeah, the uh, I think it was Meitu, M-E-I-T-U app. They got really popular. It uh, I knew it. It started as a 
sort of a Chinese facing uh, sort of app, Chinese culture facing app of, uh, I don't know, cleaning up and, and making your face look better. And it got more sophisticated where it could trim your body and extend your legs and all sorts of like, you know, interesting graphic changes. It got really popular here in the United States for, I don't know, at least a couple of weeks until people discovered that, hey, wait a minute, like, is this sending all of this data to Chinese servers? I don't know if I feel comfortable having my face you know, on, sitting on some uh, Chinese government, you know, website somewhere that, you know, that's being sort of crawled and pulled into. So I, I think it's a very legitimate concern as to where is data being kept and, and how is data being transported? And that assumes like absolute competence, right? Like there's also like, hey, it's kept here in, in Ireland. Hey, that's a pretty safe country. Oh, wait, are, are they not using uh, TSL? <laughs> is it not even using HTTPS? Oh my God, they send this stuff in the clear, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then letting it be intercepted. Like, yeah. Uh, incompetence adds a whole new layer onto that. Yeah. That was an interesting talk, but did you go to Rob Napier's talk on security, practical security? I did not. I'm waiting for the session video to come up for that one. Yeah. So I went to that one because it's one of my pet peeves, right? And, and it was interesting how he talked about how passwords are handled or, and, you know, giving advice to developers on how to, you know, basically don't, don't deal with the password as clear text, you know, hash it initially, then salt it to, to make it more complex and then stretch it to make it longer. Um, and just, you know, which basically adds time to how long it takes for a, a crack engine to try and break it down. And just by adding, you know, 80 milliseconds to the time it takes to, uh, 80 milliseconds worth of processing to it, um, it extends the, the ability for them to crack it by up to like 15 million years, which is kind of cool. But, um, the whole, uh, the whole thing about explaining how, and, you know, to use SHA-2 as the real, really own proper cipher to use in, in, um, encrypting your, your passwords when you're hashing it, but um, you know, sort of having to explain to developers that these are all the things you should do with passwords. You know, work that backwards and say, well, how many of us are actually going to that extent and doing that now? Right. So, when you sign into these services, how do you know that your your password isn't being sent as clear text? You don't know, right? And again, that's one of the reasons why Apple mo is moving towards ATS, where they're uh, insisting that servers are using at least HTTPS encryption and then you know various levels of cipher cipher on the server side, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all pretty worrying stuff when you when you if you really think about it, right? That's why I think it's important. And, and we talked about this maybe two episodes ago, or maybe three, that the more that the platform owners like Apple can do to make this the path of least resistance, like right. ideally, it would actually be more difficult to do it the unsafe way than the safe way. Like that's the best possible place that they could have things in. Like don't go roll your own, you know, encryption scheme, just use whatever here, you know, yeah, I wonder why Apple doesn't have like a password kit. Exactly. Why doesn't Apple make a security kit or a password kit or something like that for, for developers to piggyback on, right? Rather than letting us do it ourselves. That goes to websites too, right? Like, you know, you don't know when you when you log into, I mean, they're out there um, like Slack, you know, you don't know uh, when you tap in your password, unless you use a tool like Charles Proxy to actually see if it's being encrypted. And then, you know, you can always reverse that and read it and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when Jay Freeman's talk comes out on the on the session videos, um, that'll be a good one to sort of listen to again. Um, mm -hmm. I think I'd mentioned to you, Tim, I don't necessarily agree with everything and, and, and maybe not even majority of things that he um, mentioned in the talk, but I respect where he comes from on these things. Yeah. I understand the different mm -hmm. trade-off that he's making 
then they're different than the kind of trade-offs I prefer to make personally. So I don't know that there's a, a real right and wrong sort of thing, more like differing perspectives. Yeah, there, there's not enough tinfoil in the world to make everybody ha- a hat, you know, sort of um, for those kind of talks, right? But so, yeah, it's interesting to, to sort of see that. It, I mean, there were a few things in his talk that, that I didn't know, but like, like you know, the whole Mastodon was an option, not that nobody, nobody seems to be on it as far as I can tell, nobody I know anyway, <laughs> except for me. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to sort of see when, when you take apart what's going on. I'm just looking for my notes here on the, on Jay's talk. As you know, I took wrote down everything I heard. Um, oh, do you want dystopia? That was his talk. Yeah, we got lots of That's feedback on the last episode, like quality-wise. So, can you say? Can you describe the sources of these feedback? Because I think I only saw like one person on Twitter um, uh, chat. With well, him. actually, Sean contacted me directly. He's, he's, he messages me, Sean um, Arston. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to tell with Twitter, 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 Twitter sometimes because sometimes it's just like you know get it from all over the place, right? So let me let me just have a look at the account. They were yeah. they were contacting M- MTJC, not me directly. So I could have sworn I looked at that too, but like. I, I take your word for it that, that, that stuff like that ended up well, so, I just couldn't see it. So here's what happened. So I got um, Sean complained about. So Mark, we're talking about the audio quality in the last episode because we didn't we didn't do the recording. It was done by yeah. 360 iDev. Yeah, I saw the uh, the Slack postings. Although I didn't have anything to contribute, so I didn't. The Slack. Oh, in our in our between Jaime and myself. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So what happened was um, basically I, I I tried to get the echo out as much as possible because you really couldn't hear Tammy and and Jean talking because they're they're you know, light light voices and Jaime and and Joe both have deep you know radio voices so they were they were relatively clear and they were like mumbly bits because what happened was is the audio would go between pick it would either pick it up off the PA or it would pick it up of us talking right in front of the microphone. Because you know that little thing that was—I don't know if you saw that little thing that was sitting on top of the the um, podium, Jaime. That's what was recording us. Mm-hmm. So we should have, if we had a half a brain, we would have taken that and put it on the chair in front of where you were looking at the notes, right? Because then, then that would have picked all of us up, right? So anyway, so it was all like the volumes were all over the place, like through the whole thing. So I went through, you know, I went through the initial levels, and I had to had to, you know, I think I, I don't know if I posted a picture of the automation I had to use, but. I had to like you know boost things three times and you know to try and get them so they were even and then uh, and at the end of it I did I ran a bunch of noise filters and that really sort of made it very tinny and very sort of I guess like sounded like a tin can kind of thing as opposed to like an empty hall right so and then so I and, and then as soon as I got some complaints about it like I got about four people sort of said they couldn't listen to it so I basically unpublished it right but apparently Overcast caches the feed right so even though I unpublished the episode people were still listening to it on Overcast, but they were still able to get the link to the the actual show, right? So, mm-hmm. for, fortunately, I had gone through and I went back to the back to the source. I thought, well, you know, I'll put this up so people can hear what it sounded like from the get go. But I had already so the first level slide, I just you know unedited without any editing for content. I put that one up and then said, here, listen to this if you think it's all you know that, that any better. And um, but I, I figured, well, you know, I already had that version where I'd taken all the post processing off of it, but I had just a level fix. And, you know, that was sort of, it's sort of, a, uh, I take that file and I put it into the main final mix and, and it's uh, like, it's sort of like the, the master. And um, so I was able to, so I, I ran it through the, the last version where I had edited all the content out, like, you know, taking all the stuff that I didn't want in the show out of it. And I was able to get like basically a an empty hall version or what I called bootleg version of the thing. Sounds like somebody recorded it from the front seat of the conference, really, right? So that's why I called it the bootleg version. And that, that, that's what I've got published there now. But then we had another 300 downloads today, so go figure. Mm-hmm. 
you know. Then I did put a big disclaimer at the top of it saying, hey, the, the audio is not great, you know, caveat emptor. Yeah, I mean, considering the what we know now is the challenging conditions, um, it, it makes sense that it would be kind of like that. I, I thought stuff was going through the mics and I thought it was recording. Yeah, me too. The stream. I didn't realize it was like relying on this other sensitive microphone to pick up the booming from the you know like the speakers themselves yeah, yeah i was yeah. a little bit surprised so i guess we'll know for next time that's why our own our own um audio uh is like you know i was standing right next to the mic so i'm crystal clear and you were standing across the room so you know you can you can, i've i've done if you've listened to it but i went back and listened to our talk and because i had to make notes on it for my article and um i mean you're listenable you can you can definitely make out what you're saying and the idea the reason he uses that kind of mic is because he says some people wander away from the podium right but i Ideally, what he should have done was he should have made arrangements with the PA people to order right off, to record right off the board, you know, the mixing board at the back of the room. But, you know, oh well, yeah. what can you do? So I'm just, I'm just glad they had a microphone for me. <laughs> <laughs> How do you mean? Like for you? Well, yeah, because yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to, I was like, oh, I guess we're both going to have to stand really close to this podium. Because um, Mark, they weren't quite prepared to, to have a second speaker at our talk. Um, they weren't, they weren't prepared to have a second speaker from the get go. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, this entire time. <laughs> was just one big joke to me of like yeah, I kept teasing him about it. Like, like what things am I missing out on? There's a speaker Slack channel, man. I didn't know that. Um, my T-shirt, you know, my official conference T-shirt. Apparently, there's like a speaker version. The only difference is it says speaker on like on the, the sleeve. Cl- yeah, which you know, I was like, all right, you know, it's all good. And well. he didn't get the same happens. swag bag that I got. And <laughs> yeah, which apparently had like, Red Bull and and some other treats in it and stuff. Um, yeah, and so I was. Uh, I was joking. It was like, wait, but like Tammy got all this stuff and she was like a last minute speaker. I was like, well, yeah. sorry, Lopez, there's, there's no more room in the budget for this stuff. Oh, here you go, Tammy. Here's your swag bag. Yeah. And you so could have got it. You could go well overall. Yeah. Surprisingly. Yeah. We were more yeah. surprised than anybody else, I think. Right. How many people came? Um, we had a, we had more people for our talk than we had for the podcast recording. <laughs> yeah. Think, let's yeah. talk about those as two distinctly different things. Cause I think there was uh, stuff. So, we were in we that, were in a small that room, room. Probably had. Would you say it's more than twenty? Did I count oh, it was more? Than more more than twenty. Yeah, yeah. So like thirty. Well, stop me it, when I was, hit a, a multiple. Yeah, of I, 10 would say, I would say I would say two short of thirty. Let's say because because there was about I didn't count how many. I can actually I could count how many desks there are because Fouad took a picture of the room, not with me in it, but with other people in it. And um, I think there were three across and two two rows of three, so six in each row. And if you imagine, let's say ten rows, yeah, that's like possibly sixty people, right? No, is that right? Yeah, for Mexico. Yeah capacity yeah i'd say it was like a 50 to 60 person room yeah it wasn't that great big wasn't wasn't a huge room but yeah so we, we filled mm-hmm. it minus two people two seats i think and there were a few people standing at the back so yeah and yeah. the other right. challenge for our talk was the fact well a couple things one is that our talk was across from a couple others like at the same time like joe oh, yeah. talk which of course he's going to get a lot of folks and the swift playgrounds one which i thought was also going to be kind of popular but the other confounding factor for that was the fact that uh, there was a little bit of confusion because a lot of people thought that our talk was going to be after lunch so they thought it was like at 1 30 and oh talk yeah, actually right. ended at like 1 30 or something or 12 30 something like that so yeah, a, a couple of our, my friends said that they were going to come watch us talk and then they didn't realize we were at uh we were after the fact right so yeah they went to had they went and had lunch and they thought they'd come back but i don't know we all had an app we all had the same app so <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just weird it. because the other days were not like that the other days you would be at lunch at the same time that our talk would be taking place oh really okay yeah hmm. Um, and then as far as the podcast recording goes, we just, we went after 
an evening event that already ran long yeah, for the yeah, stump yeah. 360 thing. So it was like what, eight when we started recording seven uh, 30, maybe at the seven 30. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, you're right. I think it, we were planning on recording at eight anyway, but yeah, it ended up being, cause we, we could have started recording at six 30 according to the schedule. But I mean, the, the good side of it is Jaime, we ended up on, we're, we're on the website and that's going to be there forever because so. no, but like that explains like the number of people. Cause I think other people wanted to go have dinner by that point. So it was kind of right. the, the diehards oh, okay. that stayed. Yeah. yeah. And, and we had a, and we had a good group of like, we, uh, what I did was I set up two rows of chairs right in front of the stage so they could, you know, hear us if nothing else. Right. So, um, yeah, that was good. They, they seem to be happy with our, our, uh, podcast. Right. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was fun. Right. It was fun. Well, anyway. I would have liked to have been there. Yeah. We would have liked to have had you there. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Next year.